welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Similar to the podcast's sister production across the pond, The Great British Baking Show, it's divisibility and categorical approach week on the podcast, at least during the latter half of the episode. Not as tasty as is, say, bread week, but also much healthier, so long as you use the right elements. I'm sorry for my jokes, everybody. Nothing but seriousness going forward. First up is Osmani v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on January 24th, 2022. This decision is about BIA fact-finding and discretion. Mr. Osmani is from the former Yugoslavia, Kosovo specifically, and was admitted to the U.S. as a refugee in 1999. He did not adjust to lawful permanent resident status and did not naturalize, and in 2019 was convicted for possessing illegal narcotics. Apparently he had more convictions as well, and so DHS charged him as removable for a bunch of reasons. Still a refugee, though, so in removal proceedings, Mr. Osmani applied to adjust to LPR status under INA Section 209, the Special Refugee Adjustment of Status provision. And even though his convictions, crimes involving moral turpitude at a minimum here, made him inadmissible, for the specific refugee adjustment provision, an immigration judge can waive inadmissibility, quote, for humanitarian purposes to assure family unity or when it is otherwise in the public interest, end quote. Great waiver. Mr. Osmani submitted a whole bunch of evidence in support and, quote, claimed he had no ties or documentation linking him to Kosovo, would be unable to support himself if removed, and was a member of a persecuted ethnic minority, end quote. Not so surprising, he did have refugee status. DHS did not take any position on the waiver and didn't file a pre-hearing brief. Mr. Osmani testified and was cross-examined. After taking a lot of evidence, the IJ informed Mr. Osmani that, quote, he didn't really want to hear any additional evidence, end quote. The government responded no when the IJ asked, quote, if there was anything the government needed to hear additional-wise, end quote. 
then the IJ granted the waiver and adjustment to Mr. Osmani. But DHS appealed, and on appeal, end quote, after failing to take any position before the IJ, end quote, DHS argued for the first time that Mr. Osmani's U.S. family ties were insufficient for a waiver and that the equities did not favor his case. Mr. Osmani, who again wasn't appealing because he won and so had no form to really make affirmative arguments, sought a remand in the alternative to supplement the record with additional evidence in the event that the BIA bought DHS's arguments. The BIA overturned the IJ, declined to remand, and ordered Mr. Osmani removed. Mr. Osmani petitioned for review to the Seventh Circuit, and while the petition was pending seven months ago, ICE deported him to Kosovo. But they gotta bring him back, because the Seventh Circuit remanded. First, jurisdiction. It's a bit hairy because really, Mr. Osmani is requesting review of the BIA's discretionary determination. But Mr. Osmani brought a sufficient legal challenge for the Seventh Circuit to hear it. Mr. Osmani, quote, claims the BIA ignored binding precedent and exceeded the scope of its appellate review by considering arguments the government raised initially on appeal, end quote. And that the BIA engaged in improper fact-finding. And those are arguments that the Seventh Circuit can review. Just an aside, note how the Seventh Circuit will review the argument that the BIA engaged in improper fact-finding without Mr. Osmani having to file a motion to reconsider. That's in contrast to how the Fifth Circuit ruled two and three weeks ago in the Avias Tavara and Santos Acaria cases, respectively. The Fifth Circuit would have likely deemed the argument improperly exhausted because a motion to reconsider was not filed, but not so in the Seventh. Anyway, the merits. The BIA has long held, at least when non-citizens try it, that it, quote, generally will not consider an argument or claim that could have been, but was not, advanced before the immigration judge, end quote. And that's a quote directly from Matter of WYC and HOB from 2018. Here's why I love the Seventh Circuit. The court rejected the government's argument that, quote, only the party with the burden of proof, here Mr. Osmani, is limited on appeal to arguments presented to the IJ, end quote. Rather, quote, precedent restricted the BIA's review to those arguments the government presented to the IJ, end quote. Huge holding, albeit perhaps obvious in other areas of law. In this case, although DHS was not required to take a position on Mr. Osmani's eligibility, its failure to file a pre-hearing statement, question Mr. Osmani further, and at any time indicate an objection to Mr. Osmani's waiver applications, bars it from making the arguments for the first time before the BIA. Simply put, if DHS wanted to argue that Mr. Osmani didn't warrant discretionary relief, it needed to expressly make the argument before the IJ couldn't do it for the first time before the BIA, and so the BIA erred by letting it. Turning then to the request for remand, which really I guess the Seventh Circuit didn't have to do, the Seventh Circuit held that the BIA couldn't deny relief by relying on conditions in Kosovo without remanding for presentation of new evidence. And that's because even though Mr. Osmani of course had the ultimate burden in the case, the IJ didn't rely on conditions in Kosovo to reach the discretionary ruling. And actually, the IJ said that more evidence on the issue wasn't even required. What was Mr. Osmani supposed to do? Appeal his win? Quote, In effect, because Mr. Osmani succeeded before the IJ but then lost before the BIA on appeal, he won too soon, and on an underdeveloped record. End quote. Put in legalese that must be argued, quote, By engaging in de novo review of undeveloped record evidence on the conditions in Kosovo, 
the BIA engaged in impermissible fact-finding and exceeded the scope of its appellate review. End quote and great quote. Case remanded. Hopefully they can find Mr. Osmani in Kosovo, and hopefully he's okay. Man, I love me some decisions on burdens. And that is because I am a nerd. And that is Osmani v. Garland. The Seventh Circuit also published Die v. Garland, published on January 24th, 2022. And that last decision, everyone, was the sole win for non-citizens this week. Such is the life of an immigration podcaster. This case here is all about religious persecution and credibility. Miss Dai came to the U.S. as a student and affirmatively applied for asylum with USCIS. As the basis, she stated in her application that she became a Christian in July 2009 following an incident where her grandmother was hit by a motorcycle and a Miss Wang, a Christian, cared for her grandmother and prayed with Miss Dai. At a home church meeting in November 2010, police broke in, arrested members, interrogated Miss Dai at a police station, and beat her for refusing to admit that her Christian activities went against the communist government. She was placed in detention for five days with little food or water, and she was released after paying a fine and signing a statement, swearing not to practice her religion anymore. The asylum officer heard that story and deemed Miss Dai not credible for a variety of reasons, including because she apparently got some dates wrong, she was not responsive, and she failed to provide details about a variety of her claims. That placed Miss Dai in removal proceedings to try for asylum again, and in a very difficult position. It appears that at her individual hearing before an immigration judge, Miss Dai testified much more consistently with her asylum application. She also stated that she appeared at a police station four times in China, and that she was eventually baptized in the U.S. However, on cross-examination, it got a bit inconsistent. She fluctuated on whether her grandma attended church with her, was a bit vague about the injuries that she herself received, and she pretty much admitted to visa fraud. Plus, she didn't have any direct corroborating evidence like letters from her fellow church members in China. Now, she did present a letter from her mother warning her not to come back and that police had come around the house looking for her. But the IJ made an adverse credibility finding and so denied relief, and the BIA affirmed. As did the Seventh Circuit. Now true. In the seventh, quote, the IJ must distinguish between inconsistencies that are material and those that are not, end quote. But the IJ did so here. And Miss Dai herself acknowledged some inconsistencies, but she maintained that they were, quote, trivial, end quote, or didn't otherwise support an adverse credibility finding. Not so, said the seventh. First, it agreed that the date where Miss Dai began practicing Christianity was a, quote, moving target, end quote. Dates really are so important at least month and year. So says me. The other inconsistencies and vagaries identified by the IJ make this all the more problematic, including the severity of the harm Miss Dye suffered. While Miss Dye's counsel attempted to explain away the issue by stating that she shouldn't have to recount all of the, quote, gory details, end quote, every time that she testifies, she kind of had to, because with persecution, quote, it is the details that reveal the severity of the particular situation, end quote. And, while it may have been reasonable that Miss Dye's fellow churchgoers couldn't provide letters because they, quote, may have been under the watchful eye of the local police, end quote, the Seventh Circuit expected that the mother's letter would have had more details. Miss Dye therefore lost her case. And that's all I've got from the Seventh Circuit. 
But while I'm on asylum, I note that the Fifth Circuit slightly amended its matter of AB agreeing decision in Jacko v. Garland, discussed on episode 79 of the pod. And that is Die v. Garland. That brings us to Matter of Cope, published by the BIA. This is the second case about divisibility published by the BIA in back-to-back weeks. Mr. Code is an LPR who, in November 2019, was convicted of theft in the first degree in violation of sections 714.1 and 714.21 of the Iowa Code, receiving a sentence to a term of imprisonment not to exceed 10 years. Pertinent to the ultimate issue at hand, if the crime is an aggravated felony, Mr. Cote loses his green card and is removable. In this decision, the BIA held that it was. The reasons are as follows. INA section 101A43G defines as an aggravated felony a theft offense for which the term of imprisonment is at least one year. To determine whether a state offense, like the Iowa crime here, matches the definition of a theft aggravated felony, we apply the categorical approach, comparing the elements of the state offense to those of the federal theft offense. What is a federal theft offense, you ask? So many have. Well, the BIA defines it as, quote, the taking of or exercise of control over property without consent. Whenever there is a criminal intent to deprive the owner of the rights and benefits of ownership, even if such deprivation is less than total or permanent, end quote. And by that definition, it, quote, does not encompass crimes committed by fraud or deceit, end quote. A different aggravated felony covers those crimes, INA Section 101A43MI, but for that aggravated felony to apply, a loss of over $10,000 to the victims must have occurred. So at immigration law generally, a theft that can be committed by fraud or deceit or trickery isn't going to match the definition of a theft offense aggravated felony, although it might match the definition of a INA Section 101A43MI aggravated felony. More on that later. And lo and behold, Iowa Code Section 714.1 has 10 subsections, some of which can be committed through fraud, while others clearly match the definition of generic theft. That obviously makes the statute overbroad vis-a-vis the generic theft offense, meaning it's not an aggravated felony unless the separate subsections of Iowa Code Section 714.1 are elements, rather than merely means, of committing the offense. We discussed the BIA's overview of means versus elements last week in matter of Laguerre, and I'm happy to report that the analysis has not changed in the interim. Essentially, elements are those things that the juries must find to convict. Here, each section 714.1 subsection would essentially have to be a separate crime for the different subsections to be elements and the statute to be divisible. Now just looking at the statute, it does appear divisible. Rather than listing, say, a bunch of ways of committing theft under one paragraph, the Iowa statute here lists 10 separately numbered paragraphs describing how to commit a theft. That indicates that those 10 separate sections are elements, rather than means, of committing a Section 714.1 offense. Not only that, said the BIA, but the Iowa Supreme Court appears to have differentiated between the various subsections in a 2017 and 2020 decision. Also, as the BIA did last week, it also reviewed the Iowa legislative history of the crime, and held that that too supported a divisibility finding. 
So state criminal legislative history is totally in with the categorical approach, everybody. Perhaps most importantly, according to the BIA, the Iowa jury instructions for the offense are different for a variety of the subsections, indicating that a jury must find different facts met for different subsections. So all of that is pretty supportive of divisibility, at least as written by the BIA. Then the BIA got to brass tacks. It distinguished Mr. Coates' two Iowa state presidential decisions that Mr. Coates urged counseled otherwise on divisibility. And state court decisions really are the most persuasive, especially when from a state's Supreme Court. And the BIA concedes that these decisions appear to support an argument that the different ways of committing the offense are means rather than elements, making the statute not divisible, and therefore winning the day for Mr. Coates. But then the BIA noted that the two decisions were published in the 1980s. Relying on its matter of Laguerre decision issued last week, the BIA appears to believe presidential state court cases that predate Mathis are not so persuasive. The BIA cites to nothing here or in Laguerre to support such a principle, nor does it explain why Mathis, rather than say Discamps or Taylor and Shepard or the litany of old ACCA Supreme Court precedent, are the dividing line for this new analysis. The BIA went deep into those Iowa state presidential decisions and determined that they did not alter the divisibility analysis that it had just conducted. Finding the crime divisible, the BIA applied the modified categorical approach and saw that indeed Mr. Coate was convicted under subsection 1, which matches the definition of a theft offense. That means he lost his green card and is removable. Join me in the afterthoughts, if you will. So the BIA is clearly up to something here, setting precedent in back-to-back weeks that undermine the authority of old state case law. It has done so without citing any authority other than itself for this new analytical tool. Stay tuned. Substantively on the decision, I'm a bit curious. Nowhere does the BIA discuss whether the conviction actually had a term of imprisonment of at least one year, as INA Section 101A43G requires. The BIA said the issue was undisputed, and maybe so, but it seems that Mr. Coate was sentenced to, quote, a term of imprisonment not to exceed 10 years, end quote. That's a ceiling, not a floor. Motion to reconsider? Finally, allow me to mount the pedestal. By page two of this decision, I was getting all worked up because I didn't know what the BIA was going to do with Attorney General Barr's 2020 decision in Matter of Reyes, discussed on episode 14 of the podcast. At the time, I had harsh words for Reyes, as it is simply not how the categorical approach is supposed to be applied, as I understand it, at least. In Reyes, the Attorney General held, essentially, that even if a crime is not divisible, so long as all means match the definition of some aggravated felony, the conviction is an aggravated felony. Reyes actually dealt with the same issue here, a statute that could be committed by theft and fraud, thereby not matching one single aggravated felony, but matching Section 101A43G and MI. The Attorney General held that even though the statute at issue there, unlike the Iowa statute at issue here, was not divisible, the crime was an aggravated felony because all means matched some aggravated felony. No circuit is so much cited to Reyes, to my knowledge, nor would a circuit owe it any deference if it did. 
In the BIA case here, and in a footnote, unfortunately for the immigration bar, the BIA seemed poised to apply Reyes but couldn't, because the fraud section of the Iowa statute doesn't require a loss of over $10,000, meaning that even if they were means, the fraudulent, non-theft portion don't even match the definition of any other aggravated felony. But the shot across the bow was made. I believe Reyes is wrong. The Attorney General should vacate it before the case is applied and creates a huge mess like Matter of Silva Trevino did. Respectfully requested. And that is Matter of Coat. Okay. Next is Arutia Robles v. Garland, published by the 8th Circuit on January 26, 2022. This case is about motions to reopen and equitable tolling. Mr. Rutia appears to have entered the U.S. unlawfully, but was here for a long time and so, in removal proceedings, applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A-B. The IJ and then the BIA found that he met all of the requirements, including even the very difficult-to-meet-hardship standard, but that he still didn't warrant relief as a matter of discretion. Specifically, he had more than one DUI, including one where there was an accident that resulted in a pedestrian suffering a brain and leg injury. The Eighth Circuit denied the petition for review by a published decision in 2019 BP, but then in 2020, Mr. Arutia filed a motion to reopen with the Board of Immigration Appeals. And he filed it with the BIA because the BIA is the court that last had jurisdiction over his administrative case. Circuits don't obtain the case per se, they just review the agency decision. So even though the Eighth Circuit ruled on the merits last, any motion to reopen must still be filed with the BIA. As the basis for that motion, Mr. Oratia presented new evidence that pertained to his good character. But the BIA held that the motion was untimely, such motions must be filed within 90 days of the BIA's decision, and that equitable tolling of that deadline was not warranted. The BIA also declined to exercise its sua sponte authority to reopen. No time limit on that, but hard to get. Motion to reopen denied, Mr. Uretia petitioned for review again. And the Eighth Circuit denied again. So the motion is definitely untimely. That means, under Supreme Court precedent, quote, to qualify for the remedy of equitable tolling, the non-citizen bears the burden of establishing two elements, one, that he has been pursuing his rights diligently, and two, that some extraordinary circumstance stood in his way, end quote. Here, the Eighth Circuit held that the BIA didn't actually need to address equitable tolling, where the underlying basis for denial was discretionary, and the BIA didn't want to amend its discretionary finding. That is, under Supreme Court precedent, quote, the BIA may leap ahead, as it were, and simply determine that even if the first two concerns were met, the movement would not be entitled to the discretionary grant of relief, end quote. Glad I have no listeners of the BIA. And here that's what the BIA did. It held that even if properly before the BIA, the motion didn't present evidence that would likely change the discretionary denial. The new evidence Mr. Uratia submitted about his rehabilitation and the hardship to his daughter, for example, was, quote, cumulative evidence, not a completely new basis for seeking cancellation of removal, end quote, as may have affected the underlying decision. The Eighth Circuit held that it lacked authority to review the denial of sua sponte reopening, and so dismissed this second of Mr. Uratia's petition for reviews. One more thing about equitable tolling. 
The Eighth Circuit states here that actually, it believes it unclear whether equitable tolling is even available for such motions. Now, I thought the Supreme Court pretty much answered that in Matter v. Lynch in a favorable way for equitable tolling in 2015, but I should probably read the decision again. Anyway, the Eighth Circuit avoided addressing that issue head-on due to its alternative holding that the case didn't warrant reopening. But that equitable tolling issue is a bit of a grenade laying around in the Eighth Circuit. And that is Eretia Robles v. Garland. Finally, we have Chamu v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on January 26, 2022. Hope you kept your brain cells intact, because this last one is a very complicated case about cocaine and the realistic probability test. Mr. Chamu is from Mexico and was placed in removal proceedings after being in the United States for over 10 years. He has U.S. citizen children and a U.S. citizen or LPR mother, and so as a defense for removal, applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AB, claiming, again, that his removal would cause his qualifying relatives exceptional and extremely unusual hardship. Problem is that in 2003, he pled guilty to cocaine possession in violation of Florida Statute Section 893.136A. DHS left him alone until the Trump administration when, in 2017, DHS initiated the aforementioned removal proceedings. DHS argued that the drug conviction barred Mr. Chamu from relief because it qualified as a law relating to a controlled substance, as defined at INA Section 237A2BI, which, if true, indeed bars him from the relief. And IJ and the BIA held that it was a bar. The argument requires application of the categorical approach, and here the 11th Circuit agreed with the BIA, at least as to the ultimate result. Mr. Chamu made two arguments, one kind of standard and one a bit more unique. First, Mr. Chamu argued that Florida criminalizes possession of more versions of cocaine than do the feds, making the possession statute broader than the federal definition of a controlled substance offense. Second, he argued that Florida possession was broader than the federal removability provision because that, quote, Florida possession statute alone presumes that a defendant knows a possessed substance is illegal, whereas federal law requires proof of knowledge, end quote. That is, the argument goes, the Florida statute presumes the mens rea required of the federal offense, which would then appear to criminalize a broader swath of conduct than do the feds, which again, require actual knowledge. All right. And I just love this. Mr. Chamu presented a declaration from a chemistry expert to explain how indeed the Florida and federal definitions of cocaine are different, and why the Florida Possession Statute covers different substances. But again, it didn't win the day for Mr. Chamu, and here's why. Apparently cocaine is made of or encompasses what are called isomers. And Florida apparently criminalizes possession of more or different isomers than do the feds so it would appear that the statute is overbroad. After all, under Ramos v. U.S. Attorney General, the statutory text alone of a statute will make it overbroad. Litigants need not satisfy the realistic probability test and show that the state actually prosecutes the overbroad conduct where the statutory text alone makes it so. But according to the court, even under Ramos, quote, a litigant still must show that any textual differences carry actual legal consequences, end quote. Put another way, quote, different words alone are not enough, end quote. 
At least if, for example, the state and feds criminalize the same stuff, like cocaine isomer possession, but just use different words. In that case, the state statute would not be overbroad, because even though different words are used, they're criminalizing the same thing. Back to isomers. They're essentially, again apparently, the same chemical compounds just arranged differently. And while indeed Florida criminalizes possession of one cocaine isomer that the feds don't, the 11th Circuit doesn't believe that actually, it's even possible to possess that final isomer. The 11th Circuit isn't even convinced that the overbroad isomer of cocaine exists. Quote, We would not find overbroad a state statute criminalizing the possession of a dangerous animal, defined to include dragons, if the relevant federal comparator outlawed possession of the same animals, but did not include dragons. Unless, of course, the offender provided evidence that dragons actually exist. End quote. Invitation accepted. According to the 11th Circuit, even the expert opinion on isomers didn't resolve the issue and prove that this one specific cocaine isomer exists, at least in quantities that could ever actually be possessed in a way different from what the feds criminalize. This is a flaw all the more fatal to the panel, because Mr. Chamu has the burden to establish relief eligibility. Complicated stuff. Turning then to Mr. Chemu's second argument, the stuff about the different mental states required of Florida versus the federal crime. The 11th Circuit rejected it. See, mens rea or mental state is important when, for example, we're comparing a state statute to a specific federal statute. Think the crime of violence definition at 18 U.S.C. section 16A, and the Supreme Court's decision in Borden that a recklessness mens rea won't satisfy it. But for other removability offenses, at least like this one here that simply relates to a controlled substance, the categorical approach, quote, asks the court to determine not whether the prior conviction was for a certain offense, but whether the conviction meets some other criterion, end quote. And the only criterion for laws relating to a controlled substance is, quote, controlled substance, end quote. There is no criminal mental state mandated under the federal definition the state conviction must simply relate to a controlled substance. Quote, Florida's mens rea requirements, whatever they may be, are irrelevant. End quote. Nice argument though, Mr. Chamu, and maybe it'll work in another circuit. But here, Mr. Chamu lost a big one. Ira Kurzban's not pleased, and I'm exhausted. And you know I got more. First, it appears that Mr. Chamu made arguments for the first time on petition for review to show that yes, indeed, the isomer exists, but the 11th Circuit refused to consider them because they weren't facts in the record. But they can be next time, so reach out to Sui Chung and Michael Vastine to steal their arguments. And to be honest, I suspected it was those two even before I looked it up on Westlaw. Tough loss, guys. And yeah, not great for non-citizens, but actually, decent in my opinion for non-citizens on the realistic probability test. Ramos has been under attack a bit in the 11th Circuit, and certainly a bit at the BIA, but this decision is quite clear that Ramos is still good law. Importantly, the 11th Circuit did not affirm the BIA's holding below that Mr. Chamu needed to satisfy the realistic probability test and find an exemplar overbroad Florida prosecution to succeed. The text alone if it had actually been overbroad, would have won the day. If I haven't said it enough on the podcast, Matter of Guadarrama is not good law in the very 11th Circuit that it was issued, and it's wrong on how the 11th Circuit views Ramos. 
Caveat, weird footnote 3 though. Unsure what to make of it. Finally, if all of this isomer stuff sounds a bit familiar, it is. A similar argument was made before the 5th Circuit in Alexis v. Barr, discussed on episode 7. The 5th Circuit, unlike the 11th and most circuits, requires non-citizens to satisfy the realistic probability test to prevail on arguments such as this. But after the Alexis case, I was informed by Texas counsel that actually, there does exist a case in Texas where Texas prosecuted the overbroad isomers. But it wasn't found soon enough for Mr. or Mrs. Alexis. The realistic probability test can be hard to meet, but it may be the only way to win these types of cases, so it's so important to find a case applying the statute in an overbroad manner. We really need an ALA or Law School Center database of state convictions applying statutes in an overbroad manner to allow immigration attorneys to satisfy the realistic probability test from state to state. And that is Shamu, the U.S. Attorney General. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.